0: Let's open up our Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. When you get there, if you'll stand, we'll read the passage together. Just five verses. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 26. Of course, the setting is what we refer to as the Last Supper, the last physical meal Christ ate on earth with the disciples before He went to the cross. Beginning in verse 26, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is My body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Let's pray one more time. Father, we know that your word is infinitely deep. But Lord, we also rejoice to know you want to teach us line upon line, precept upon precept. And Lord, while we admit that no mortal mind, especially living on this planet right now, can even grasp the full import and the full weight of what we just read. But Lord, we ask you to teach us what we need to know for today. Father, I pray You would open our eyes to behold the Lamb of God. I pray, Father, as we prepare our hearts for a communion that it wouldn't just be another ritual. Father, in a room this size, You know the hearts of men. There's probably sin that has not been dealt with. And there's probably people here who know that. There's encouragement that's needed. And a host of other things. Father, I pray You'd minister to hearts. Lord, feed us with the living bread as each heart has need. But Lord, above it all, let us exalt Christ and to praise Him. In Jesus' name, amen. I suppose this morning is uh, somewhat unusual in that this is actually the second half of a two-part message that most of you probably don't even remember. Uh, In fact, I actually had to go back and and, uh, look at my records. I keep records of where we've been and and what's been taught, and it was actually in March of 2016 uh, that the first part of this message was preached, so that was a good year and a half ago. Uh, So I don't expect you to remember everything, and I'm not offended. I'm going to try to bring us up to speed. Uh, that message was entitled, This Cup, and what we were talking about is the symbolism of the communion elements and and uh, some of the applications of that as we take it. It's not just, yes, 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 Jesus died for our sins. That's glorious truth, but there's a lot of depth in in, in thinking about the biblical pictures that God has chosen. There's a lot said about the bread and about the cup, and there's a lot to, to think about as we partake together of these elements. There's just a couple of thoughts from the last message I want to refresh us on. Uh, One of them is the goodness of God in choosing commonplace symbols to illustrate the salvation of a soul. Have you ever thought about that as you walk through Scripture? God uses a lot of pictures uh, to illustrate a sinner coming to salvation. He uses a picture of birth. He uses a picture of wind blowing. He uses a picture of of cleansing. And there's a whole lot of other pictures used, but generally they're things God has chosen that are are commonplace, that are universal to mankind. And I would say and point out that God does the same thing when it comes to the communion table. I mean, what if God had said, uh, when you partake of this table, it has to be in a golden chalice. And it has to be carried out in the land of Palestine. How many people in the world would be shut out? I don't know about you, I can't afford to fly to Palestine several times a year. And by the way, churches differ in frequency. The Bible doesn't say you have to observe communion this often. It varies everywhere from one week to once a year, and everything in between. And I think churches differ in their needs, and, and, and something we decide as we go. We do it roughly once per quarter, but it's not, a, it's not carved in stone. I think it ought to be left a little bit flexible, or it can become stale. The last thing we want to become stale in our own life is remembering what Christ did. But God has chosen the commonplace. He's not chosen golden chalices and trips to Palestine to remember. He's chosen bread and uh, a cup of juice, the fruit of the vine. And one of the things that shows is God's desire that all of His people participate. There's no class distinctions at the foot of the cross. I understand we go our ways and we live in different homes and we have different jobs. I get that. But when it comes to our standing before the living God, the only class distinction is do you have Christ or do you not have Christ? That's it. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul writes, "...whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God." He wasn't merely saying, pick some things and try to do them so God's happy. One of the things he's illustrating is there's really nothing purely secular in the life of a Christian. Tell me something. Is it possible for you to eat a sandwich to the glory of God? According to that passage, it is. You say, well, that's, that's pretty mundane. How can that be an act of worship? Listen, Anything that falls within the will of God for us, whether little or small, can be done with His glory in mind. And if it can't be done with His glory in mind, we probably ought not be doing it. But there's not this divisive wall. Sunday is my spiritual day. Sunday, this is who I am. Sunday. How many people are you? I hope you're one. I do. God wants you to be one person. Oh, yes, two natures, new nature, fighting with an old, yes, but one redeemed sinner walking with God, not pretending to be something we're not. The other thing I want to deal with here, just by way of reminder, is uh, bring up the question why are there two symbols? I mean, have you ever wondered why does he give us two elements to partake of, uh, not merely one? I mean, doesn't the bread and the cup, don't they both represent the same violent death? And don't they both point back to the same rugged cross? Don't they both illustrate truths about the same Savior? I mean, don't they point to the same way of salvation? I want to answer that in four different aspects. First of all, if you remember, in relation to Old Testament sacrifices, what was it God required? It was blood and death that were needed. When it came to those animal sacrifices, beginning with that first Passover, and in fact, beginning before that, it could not be a bloodless death or a deathless bloodshed. Both of those would have been unacceptable to God. There had to be the bloodshed and the death. The life-sustaining element had to be drained out. The evidence of that life Emotion, intellect, will had to terminally cease existence and function on this earth. Perhaps you remember Jerusalem 15, the Jerusalem Council, as it's sometimes called. Uh, They had this discussion about what should we require of the Gentile churches. It was in the early days of the church, and there was a lot of discussion. What do we do with Judaism? Now, that's been systematized later on, but one of the things they came up with was telling the Gentiles, stay away from idols and stay away from things strangled. And maybe you thought, why is that prohibition there? Well, in the Jewish mind, a bloodless death was a total abhorrence. A beginning when animals first were slaughtered, when Noah came off the ark and God prescribed meat for mankind's diet, the blood had to be spilled out. So to the Jew, the idea of death without shedding blood was repulsive because everything they did, the blood, had to be poured out. They had a great respect for blood for that that life sustaining and, and life giving element. And that goes all the way back to Genesis 9. In relation to the death in Christ, of death of Christ. You see, it was the flesh and the blood that were both required. You ever thought the, the blood that Christ shed would have been ineffectual without the life he lived? Let me illustrate what I mean. If God had just transported a Savior down to planet Earth, boom, and He went from heaven to Calvary in one step, it couldn't have been acceptable. Do you know why? Because there had to come a sacrifice that was spotless. There had to come a lamb that would keep God's requirements. There had to come a demonstration of perfect manhood lived on terra firma, You see, the death He died was ineffectual without the life He lived. And you can turn that around. Had Christ lived a a perfect, sinless life and yet departed without bloodshed, God's requirement still would not have been satisfied. You see, just like the Passover lamb, remember it was kept from the 10th to the 14th day? Looking for a blemish. And the idea was, on that 14th day, you know if that lamb has a blemish or not. You see, God's Passover lamb was observed for 33 years from the cradle to the cross. And I'll tell you, there was no blemish on that lamb. There was no blemish when He went to the cross. In our physical life, what do you need? Do you need to eat or drink? Both. You can go a little longer without food than water. But if you don't have both, you're in serious trouble. How about our spiritual life? You know the same is true. You and I have to learn to feast on the blood and the flesh of Christ. Now obviously you know I'm not saying be a cannibal. You know the early church, they were accused of being cannibals. Because they observed what we're going to observe today. And people twisted their words and said, Oh, you're in there eating pieces of human flesh. So when I say feast on the body and blood of Christ, I'm not saying eat his meat. I I trust that you understand that. Here's what I am saying We have to learn to gaze upon the impeccable, powerful, beautiful life he lived. That's the flesh and the manner in which He suffered, and to understand that as we behold Him, we are transformed. That's the blood. The life He lived. The death He died. And what we talked about last time was uh, four areas that we could remember when we raised this cup. Four things the cup symbolizes. One thing this cup is, is it's a cup of salvation. Look what the Lord says in this text. and He he. He's going to pass the, the fruit of the vine around and he tells the disciples, drink ye all of it. By the way, that uh, phonetically or grammatically may come across a little differently. than it, it, we got to pay attention to what he's actually saying. He's not saying drink every last ounce of it. When he says drink ye all of it, he's saying all of you drink. This is for all of you to partake. But here's what he says about the cup. This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission or the forgiveness of sins. He says, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. What a statement. What's the New Testament, the New Covenant? Remember, God had made that way back in the prophet Jeremiah and the prophet Ezekiel. The days are going to come, he says, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers, which they break. In other words, it's not going to be a covenant based on man's performance. And in God's covenant with the Jews, what you see is, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will give them a heart of flesh. I will take away their heart of stone. I will take away their sins and iniquities. And their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. When it comes to God as judge, how close are your sins to you? As far as the east is from the west. How far is that? East and west isn't just different locations; it's two different directions. So we raise the cup, which symbolizes the blood of Christ, and one thing we remember: this is a a reminder of the new covenant, where God has come to me and said, "You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ; your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. They're gone." What a promise! You know, if we were completely spiritually sane, may I say that's the only blessing we'd ever need in this life? Now, don't get me wrong, God blesses us beyond that. But if we really understand what that means, if God never blessed us beyond that materially or physically again, we would have to be eternally grateful, wouldn't we? What do we deserve? Secondly, it's a cup of submission. We throw the word, some of these Christianese words, we throw around fellowship, sanctuary, communion. What does communion mean? Uh, communion actually is, is basically the same as the word fellowship. What does that mean? Two fellows in a ship? It means closeness. Walking the same pathway. Uh, communion with who? Yes, one another. Okay, yes, but that's a, that's a byproduct Now, when Jesus, you remember, he's praying in the garden. What did he say? Father, if it be possible, let this, what? Cup pass from me. Now, he's talking about the cup of the wrath of God that he had to endure to save us from the wrath that we deserve. And he wasn't trying to get out of the cross. What he was illustrating for all time is that there was no other way. We were talking about that in in a boy's Sunday school class this morning. Whenever anybody says to you, I believe there's more than one way of salvation, they're also saying, I believe Jesus Christ went to the cross for no reason. When Christ said, if there be any other way, and the heavens were silent, here's what that was saying. There is no other way. Which other person who has lived has been God in the flesh? None. There is no other Redeemer. Jesus had communion with the Father. He was in submission to the Father. And may I say, you and I cannot really have communion with the Father without the same thing. So one of the things this symbolizes, that we lift this cup. Here's what we're saying when we partake. I don't know of any sins in my life that I'm unwilling to deal with. I'm not talking about sinless perfection. I'm not talking about having fully arrived. But I'm saying not putting a cloak over iniquity. Not being uh, pricked by the Spirit of God and saying, I'm not going to take care of that. If any man says he's walking in fellowship with God and he's walking in darkness, what does John say he is? L-I-A-R. Liar. It's a cup of salvation, a cup of submission, it's a cup of enabling. We sing the song, oh, there's wonderful power in the blood. Do you believe that? And of course what I mean, uh, drinking this isn't going to give you spiritual power. This is looking back to what Christ has done. But this reminds you of the glorious truth that the Scriptures present. Do you know, spiritually speaking, if you are a Christian, it's like you have royal blood coursing through your veins. It was said back in Leviticus, the life of the flesh is in the blood. Oh, there's a lot there. But part of that was pointing forward, saying there's going to come one with blood in his veins that's going to have the power to give life, eternal life, to all the world. You know, if you're a Christian, there's no sin you cannot overcome? Not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. There's nothing God has left you without if you will deal with things His way. So we lift the cup and we say, yes, there's power in the blood. There's power in the blood. Just like the Word of God says. And then it's a cup of future expectancy. Christ says in this passage, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Think about that. As a Christian, you can lift this cup and you can say, I know that the Son of God Himself is not going to partake of the fruit of the vine until I'm seated at His table with Him. And can I tell you, He's looking forward to that day, are you? It's a cup of future expectancy when we are in His presence, seeing Him as He is. Now we'll spend the rest of the time talking about the other symbol, this bread What does bread symbolize historically? It's actually quite a study if you've never looked up the passages. Uh, Who can guess where the first time in the Bible the word bread occurs? If you think about it, I bet you know. It occurs in Genesis chapter 3. You see, mankind failed to live up to God's one plain and simple command. God made man with a free will. He gave him only one sin he could commit, and mankind did it. And just as man is essentially being read a sentence about living in a sin-cursed planet, he's going to be banished from a paradise for good until God makes the new heaven and the new earth. Here's what he said to Adam. In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread. That's the first place it shows up. And by the way, if you're familiar with Bible interpretation, one of the laws we say is the law of first mention. A lot of times the first time a concept is mentioned in Scripture says a lot about it. kind of sets the tone. You find a lot of those firsts in the book of Genesis. There's, there's, a, there's a, quite a list. In other words, he says to Adam, this: uh, the hard and the difficult toil, the elements are going to be fighting against you as a result of the curse. Now, think of all the labor that goes into a loaf of bread. I know you think, well, I go to Walmart, I shell out $1.75 when it's on sale. Oh, that, it's not so hard. But maybe transport yourself back a little ways or think even what goes in to make that what you're eating. I mean, a parcel of ground has to be selected. It has to be cleared. The fallow ground has got to be broken up and made suitable to grow. Then you've got to have good seed. It's got to be spread on that ground. And of course, back before irrigation, you would pray and hope that rain came. Because if rain didn't come, you weren't going to have bread. And eventually, the sprouts would come up, and you'd hope the locusts wouldn't come through and devour them all, and that the rain and the sun continued. And eventually, in the fall, if things went like you hoped, you'd have a harvest, and then you'd go harvest that grain, and you'd separate the grain from the chaff and then the, the grain would dry out for a time and then it would be ground up with, with a mortar and pestle and turned into flour and then mixed with different elements and, and kneaded, And then you'd build a fire and you'd put it in a stove and you'd get the right temperature and you'd stick that in the fire and hopefully it would come out edible. And by the way, aren't you glad you don't have to do all that today? <laughs> yeah, I am. I'll admit. But... It also shows human frailty. I mean, all this labor happened over bread, and how long are we satisfied? Ladies, back then, you, you finished the meal, and they were already cooking the next one. I mean, the last bite of that loaf they took was a guarantee you're going to need the next one. The bread in the, Ta- the Old Testament, sacrifice. Sacrifice. Like the showbread and others. It did point to Christ, but also was a continual reminder of failure on mankind's part. You remember the Lord told the Jews, Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. He was saying they needed more meat and eventually they died. It was an ongoing cycle. It's a picture of our total dependence on the God of heaven. You and I in this age don't fear the words famine, locust, and drought very much. We think drought, oh I hope the forest fires are not bad. Now that's scary enough. When was the last time you heard the word drought and wondered if you were going to starve to death this winter? Probably not for most of us. But you know, still today, we're merely one sovereign act away from having the rug just ripped out from under us, aren't we? Our president is a wealthy man. He lives in quite a house. If you've seen pictures of the top three floors of Trump Tower, it looks like a Nebuchadnezzar's castle or something. But I guarantee you this, that man would trade all the gold plating and all the jet liners for one loaf of bread if he was reduced to that. And so would you. In the book of Revelation, when the horsemen of the apocalypse show up, the third horseman, is black, bringing death. And one of the things it said, measure of wheat for a penny. A denarii. In other words... The famine's going to be so bad, they're going to be selling a handful of grain for an entire day's wages, and people will jump on that as a tremendous bargain. You talk about a time I hope you don't want to be on this earth. We're talking worldwide famine, the likes of which the world's never seen. Uh, Bread also shows us the universality of the fallen curse. You know, uh, Bread's mentioned 361 times in our English Bible. Interestingly enough, bread spans across all six major uh, world empires that take place in Bible times. It's not the focal point of every passage, but it's there quietly nonetheless. Ever since God spoke the words concerning bread to Adam, every people group that has ever dwelt on the planet has proved these words true. Whether you're talking about the matza of the Jew or the flatbread of the East Indian or the tortilla of the Mexican or the cornbread of the American Indian or the hard bread of the ancient Egyptian or the hoagie of the modern Philadelphian, all mankind has proved with the sweat of his brow, he's going to eat his bread. He's going to grapple with the unpleasant elements. It was only one nation ever that saw bread rain down from heaven. But even that, if you recall, they had to gather it by labor. But you know, beyond that, bread is such a glorious picture of the Lord Jesus Himself. I mentioned bread as first uh, uh, there in connection with Adam's fall. You know where the second mention is? It's in Genesis chapter fourteen. The scene there: Abraham's coming back from the slaughter of four kings against five. He's gone to rescue his stubborn nephew Lot, and there, the sort of shadowy, mystical figure by the name of Melchizedek appears all of a sudden, almost out of nowhere. Melchizedek, king of Salem. Who is this guy? And he shows up carrying, it says, bread and wine. And it says he blessed Abraham. And, of course, the writer of the Hebrews picks up on that and says, the less is blessed of the greater. He was lifting up. Now, there's some discussion. Is Melchizedek an actual pre-incarnate appearance of Christ? Or is it a type? I would lean more towards type, not dogmatic on that. But in in any wise, it points to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so by Melchizedek, king of peace, king of righteousness, showing up there, the second mention of bread, to Abraham, who had become the father of the Jewish nation through whom the Savior would come, it was like God was saying, listen, there's going to come a bread down from heaven that's going to deal with all the deepest needs of humanity at the root level. There's coming bread, and there's coming fruit of the vine that's going to take away the sin problem. Of course, the... Greater Melchizedek, the Lord Jesus Christ, has most certainly come. Now in this passage, notice what happens with the bread. Verse 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it. Uh, This is one of the passages we would go to, to to say why we thank the Lord for food at our meals. I hope that's not the only time you pray. And by the way, can I encourage us not to make that a stale ritual either? I mean, we don't have to say the same words every time. We're actually talking to a living God. How about using some living words? <laughs> but He looks up to heaven and He blesses it. It is a, a specific acknowledgement of God's good and perfect gift to satisfy their hunger. But before it could be eaten then, what happened next? It was blessed and it was broken. he broke it. And then it was given. <clears throat> he gave to the disciples do you see Christ there as the bread of life as the manna come down from heaven to satisfy the longing souls of sinners he was blessed the bread of God was blessed he was specifically acknowledged by God as the beloved son you remember what was said on the Mount of Transfiguration this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased In other words, there is no other. This one is the solution to the sin problem. This is the desire of nations. This is the seed of the woman from Genesis 3. This is the Lamb of God. He was blessed. He was broken, wasn't he? Whose hands broke him, I ask you? The hands of the Pharisees didn't have the power to break him. Neither did the hands of the Romans. Neither did anyone else. Oh, it's such a glorious and necessary truth to point out Jesus laid down His life of His own accord. Can I tell you who broke that bread of God? It was God the Father who broke it. It was God the Father who poured out His undiminished wrath. And when Christ turned that cup over, every drop was gone. He was blessed he was broken and then what he was given. What is God's greatest gift? If you say salvation you're wrong. Do you know what God's greatest gift is? Himself. Himself. What does it mean to have eternal life? It does can it, listen eternal life does not mean living forever only. Trace it through the Scriptures. Eternal life is not speaking of a duration or of a place. Eternal life is speaking of a person, God living in you. God's greatest gift is Himself. Now, yes, salvation is a glorious byproduct. But God Himself is the great gift that He gave that whosoever will may freely eat. I love the words of Isaiah 55, verse 3. What a question. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread? He's asking people, why do you spend the best years of your life? Why do you toil away looking for satisfaction? Why do you dig among the catacombs of the dead religions of the world that can't even give life to anything and they cannot satisfy? Why do you spend money for that which is not real bread, and you labor for that which satisfieth not? Why do men do that? They think they're going to take care of the sin problem. They think they're not that bad. They think they can change themselves. What a load of baloney that is. Hearken diligently unto me eat that which is good and let your soul delight itself in fatness. God's got the banquet table spread out. The problem is we live in a world where men clamor for plan B. And there isn't one. Not at God's table. So here we are at the communion table again. And I want to draw our attention to some more of the meaning of partaking of this bread. Picture... It's a picture of feasting upon the life of Christ. You know, just as physical food is always needed, so spiritual food. Just once. How often do you have to eat? Constantly. Salvation, in a sense, is but the first meal. Now, I don't mean you have to keep being saved. I hope you understand that. But I'm saying you come to Christ, that's not it. That's not the end. That's the beginning. That merely whets the appetite for heavenly things. You know, you'll never attain maturity in the Christian life merely with a list of things you're not going to do. Don't get me wrong, staying away from evil is important. It is. It's kind of like this. If you have a bucket, you're going to fill with living water. You've got a bunch of holes in your bucket. You can patch all the holes in the bucket. That's good. But that's not going to fill the bucket. Staying away from evil, standards, all that's good. All that does is patch the holes in the bucket. The spiritual power, the living out Christ, comes from communion with Him. Comes from feasting continually. What was it the enemies of the disciples said? They took notice from them how many lovely rules they had. They took notice of them that they'd been with Jesus. You want to talk about a compliment, and you and I nowadays we say, "Well, now wait a minute. I, I, uh, (laughs) how can I be with Jesus in that sense? When's the last time you saw him with these? You haven't. Can I remind us of something? We have a more sure word of prophecy." Do you know the things written about Christ in His earthly life were perfectly selected by God for you to behold Him and they cannot be improved upon? No good thing will He withhold from you that walk uprightly, including the words of this book. Do we get that? So listen, you can open up the Scriptures and you can sit there with them as He feeds the multitude. You can drink in every word that's recorded with the simplicity of a child. You can walk with Him on the shores of Galilee. You can behold Him there walking into the temple and and see His zeal. You can follow Him up the Mount of Transfiguration through the Scriptures. And keep in mind, most of the disciples didn't go on that trip. Do you realize you can? It's right here. You can follow Him up the hill Golgotha. You can survey that tomb scene as he rose from the dead. Now, you want to talk about spiritual meat. This bread we partake of shows our desire, our acknowledgement of our need to be fed with the living bread on a continual, ongoing basis. Here's what else it pictures becoming part of his body. Instead of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament, we are of his flesh. And of his bones. Does it get any closer than that? Does it? It doesn't get any closer than that. One tragedy, if you're familiar with the terms consubstantiation or transubstantiation, some of the uh, errant teaching on what happens when we partake of communion, some groups say, well, now, uh, this is uh, uh, literally meat and a, literally a piece of Christ. And so uh, when you take it, you're eating a piece of meat that came off the Lord Jesus. Or uh, others would say, kind of in the middle, well, it's a piece of bread in your mouth, but somewhere on the way down it becomes a piece of meat. Not only is that disgusting, it's totally unbiblical. I mean, can I just be blunt? But here's the tragedy. Their picture is they're only getting part. Which part of Jesus did you eat? Little finger? It's also why we don't prefer the word sacrament. I understand it's been used particularly in Protestant circles for a long time. I'm not trying to blow anyone out of the water, but technically, the word sacrament means convey grace. The idea of a sacrament is that somehow in eating this bread and drinking this cup, you are drinking God's grace. No. These are presented in Scripture as a memorial. These are presented as tools to remember the truths that the Word of God gives us. It's calling attention to to what has been done. But it's meant to convey as we partake, we partake of Him entirely. Can you break the infinite into pieces? What's a fraction of infinity? Infinity, you mathematicians. If we partake of Christ, we partake of all of Him. You're not getting merely part of His body. And by the way, we acknowledge as a believer that Jesus deserves all of us. And that we have become part of His body, of His flesh, and of His bones. Now that unity, what does that mean in practical level? You and I all have a mission to fulfill. And the body of Christ is harmed when we don't man our post. How about this one? Which part of your body would you volunteer to have leprosy? If you're part of the body of Christ, our individual sins weaken the entire thing. It's part of the unity picture. But how about a broader application? And we'll be done. In fact, turn with me to Luke 9. Keep your finger there in Matthew if you would. Turn with me to Luke 9 quickly. The broader application I want to make, and we'll talk about it just for a moment, there's others that God wants to be fed from the same living bread. Uh, perhaps you recall the scene here in uh, Luke chapter 9 beginning in verse 13. Actually, beginning a little before that, but we'll pick up in verse 13. The disciples are exhausted. They're looking out. They're seeing thousands of people that are hungry. They're worn out. They're at the end of themselves. Any notions they had of doing this and the energy of the flesh had been trampled underfoot, they're done. They're, they're through. And they tell the Lord, hey, uh, <clears throat> are this, this multitude out here, how about we send them out of here? Maybe go to a town, get some food. People are getting hungry, people are getting grumpy. Kids are crying. I mean, let's get, you know, can you send them away? You see, what they had done, they'd come to the realization there was no way on earth they were going to take care of the problem. They knew it. It was overwhelming. And the Lord does an interesting thing, which He kind of does often to them. In verse 13, He says, Give ye them to eat. He says, uh, you feed them. <laughs> and what do they do? I mean, they basically open up their lunch boxes, they empty their pockets, they look around a little, they declare it impossible. What does the Lord do? I see the same words here again in verse 16. But first of all, though he makes the company sit down by fifties. I think one of the reasons he did that was he wasn't at all deterred by the sheer volume of the people. He had them grouped into 50s so you could tell this was a big group. In fact, if you wanted to count by 50s, you could figure out how big of a group. He wasn't deterred by the sheer size of the need because he knew his father was bigger. What does he do? Verse 16, look at the words. He takes the five loaves and the two fishes and looking up to heaven, here it is again, he blessed them. He break. He gave. Same three words. And then notice what happened next. He gave to the disciples to set before the multitude. You know, the Lord could have just spoke a word and stuck a bread basket in all 5,000 laps of the men plus the women and children. The Lord could have done it kind of country buffet style. Just everybody come, take loaves, fishes, the basket's not going to run out, Line up! But do you see the instruction he gave to the disciples? Friends, that is exactly what he does to us. He was blessed. He was broke. He was given to you. The Lord gives Christ to you partly so you can give to the multitudes. Can I tell you something? When you come to the realization that it is an utter impossibility for you to do any spiritual good in somebody's life, you're on sacred ground. When you think you're the fix-it man, when you think you have the solutions, when you think you're enough of a salesperson that you can fix this problem, may God do something like this to you. But you see, it's to those convinced, I can't raise the dead, I can't feed thousands out of nothing, I can't minister that the Lord says, abide in me, and you'll become a fountain of living. Out of your belly will come fountains of living water. Because He was blessed, He was broke, He gave, and now He distributes to you and I and says, hey... Give. The Lord did not make us to be reservoirs but conduits. Just like the Dead Sea stagnates because it has no outlet, so does a Christian. What happened with the manna when it was gathered and not distributed? It rotted. There's still plenty of room at the Father's table, isn't there? There are. There's a lot of people just in this city spending their money in the finest years of their life and toiling for bread, which is no bread at all. Seeking for solutions to the problems that don't even come close to the root level. Seeking for Saviors, capital S, that merely let them down. If you know Christ, you've been given bread to give to the multitude. Look, we cannot let the deadness of the religious hour stop us from remembering God's whosoever wills. Can't do it. So as we take this bread, one of the things we remember is to have confidence. There's a feast awaiting someone in our pathway. Jesus has been blessed, broken, given so that we can distribute to others. Let's pray and then we'll have the men come forward here. Father, thank You for our glorious Lord Jesus. Father, I thank You. You didn't wait for man to come up. That wouldn't have happened. You sent bread down. You didn't wait for man to seek You. You sought man. Father, we thank You that there is no other way of salvation because we don't want another way. But truly, the soul that knows Christ cannot bear the thought of saying there's another Savior somewhere. Thank you you've given us truth. You've given us bread. You've given us a new covenant. Help us, Lord, as we partake of these elements as a memorial to remember what you've said, what Christ has done. In Jesus' name, amen.